Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Anderson Cooper in Lviv, Ukraine. For about three weeks, I've been on the ground here reporting on the impacts of Russia's invasion on Ukraine. It's been nothing short of catastrophic in many cities around the country. Since the invasion began, Russians have been told a very different story, however. People haven't been shown the images of death and destruction that our CNN teams have seen with their own eyes. On Russian state media, it's not even called a war or an invasion. It's only described as a special military operation. The purpose of operation is to protect the civilians, which have been uh, bombed and shelled and murdered for the eight years, uh, and demilitarize, uh, demilitarize Ukraine so that, as I said, it does not possess any threat to the Russian territory. And Russia, as you know, has passed a law making it a criminal offense for anyone to broadcast quote-unquote fake information about the invasion. It's led to news organizations, including CNN, to temporarily stop broadcasting inside the country many journalists have left altogether. More than 10 people have been arrested. There's another man being taken away there. That's what we're witnessing here. Today I'm talking to CNN international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson. He's been reporting on Russia for 30 years and had been in Moscow for months during the buildup and outbreak of war in Ukraine. We'll talk about how the Russian people are responding to the invasion and why he found himself leaving Moscow, as he says, in despair. From CNN, this is Tug of War. So, Nick, where where are you right now? I'm in London, back in our office. You left Moscow nearly two weeks ago. I think you left on on March 5th, which was about nine days after the invasion. Could you talk about the decision to, to leave? Yeah, my visa was coming up in a couple of days due to expire. We only get three-month visas from the Russian authorities. And the Russians, sort of nine days into the war, had really got a good grip of the domestic media in Russia and were beginning to control them. But the mechanism to do that, the new laws that they introduced, uh, were going to have an impact on us, and we needed to evaluate it. The idea that if we used language that the Kremlin didn't agree with, like calling the war a war, where they call it a special military operation, or spoke negatively, as as the Kremlin would determine about this military operation, then potentially we could get 15 years in jail. And so we really needed to understand how that would affect us, what we could actually say. The media environment for us had completely changed. This was something entirely different, not the Russia that we'd stepped into, but something it had become. And so we hit pause to evaluate uh, that position. You know, we all know about sort of Orwellian doublespeak and stories from the Soviet Union days of just things completely being upside down and people being erased from history. What's so kind of absurd about this Russian law is that it penalizes false statements about what is happening in Ukraine 
Vladimir Putin is the one who is making false statements about what is happening in Ukraine on a daily basis. And yet the accurate reporting is now illegal and false statements are now that is the truth. And it's a bizarre situation to be in where it is almost impossible to find a way to tell accurately what's happening when the language of describing accurately what's happening, that there's a war that's killing civilians and it's Russia's military uh, that is doing the killing and it's been ordered by President Putin to use that kind of language would be to fall foul of the law. It's, it's Orwellian. There are you know, the system that, that, that Putin's created about seven years ago, he introduced these uh, foreign agent laws. And they were sort of always lurking in the background to be held over the heads of independent journalists and uh, and human rights organizations. And slowly, slowly, the Kremlin had been applying these more and more. And you saw a sort of speeding up of that year and a half ago when Alexei Navalny was was poisoned and, and Putin began to to clamp down on the media. But as soon as the war came along, um, he was able to use these foreign agent laws. Uh, that, that it really is the best way to describe them as Kafkaesque because you never know one day to the next if your media operation is going to be legal or it's going to be shut down. Uh, and he was able to use that as a, as a, as a pretext and a way to shut down some of the independent stations. The last person to leave has to switch off the light. We will end our broadcast with that and a small pause the channel is taking. No pasaran. No pasaran and no to war. Definitely no to war. There was a there's an independent channel in Russia, TV Rain, that finally went off the air once this law was passed. And the staff got up during the final broadcast and all they all walked out at the end and they played... Swan Lake. Which I didn't understand the reference at first, but there's a long history of Swan Lake being played. It's often when there's something bad happening in Russia or Soviet Union, they would play Swan Lake. It was an incredible thing for them to do. It was a last, if you will, act of defiance. I'd been talking to one of the anchors at that station maybe a month before, uh, and she'd been telling me that they never knew day to day if they were going to be on the air, that it was a, a, a frightening thing uh, to know that your, you know, your job could be pulled from under you. That playing of Swan Lake, I think that was also something that was played by state TV when Mikhail Gorbachev was being was being ousted in a coup because the state didn't have any way to explain to people what was going on. And it was sort of hitting the pause button by playing Swan Lake. But everyone in Russia of that generation knows what it means. It means that something is happening behind the scenes in the Kremlin. It's so uh, surreal to know you're watching Swan Lake and hearing this music and seeing, you know, ballerinas on tippy toes. And you know, it means somebody's getting killed or ousted or disappeared. You know, you can't, you can't come out and tell people this. You, you, you can't broadcast it because you're being shut down, because it's illegal to do it. So you turn to these alternate methods of communicating that play to, the, play to people's deeper understanding of what's happening, deeper understanding of the state. You know, it's not tangible like a war. There are no shells 
crash, crashing around you, yet the state is having a war on its on its own people by by crushing their ability to understand what's going on in the world around them. So to play swan leg to communicate that is just you, you know to you and me it would be bizarre but i think for you know for many russians that would strike that defiant note that something is not right i i really haven't spent time in in russia since the early into mid 90s when it was sort of very wild west and the things were changing it was sort of in that transition period when you know state Properties started to be sold off. Oligarchs were starting to be created. Just before the invasion, reporting in Moscow, what was it like? I mean, the le- was there there was obviously propaganda and misinformation, but as a foreign journalist, was there a sense of being watched, of of you know having to be very careful about one's movements, as there are in other repressive states? I, I think you you have to take it as as read that you're going to be watched, that there are people watching your communications, that they're listening to you. It's not oppressive. I, I think it's not oppressive in part because you're very aware of what's happening and it's not done in an overt way. But I think you just have to assume that it is happening. And although it didn't happen to us this time, it's happened on other occasions that you'll turn up to go film something somewhere and a TV crew from a Russian station, Russia Today or another another station would turn up and start shooting you doing what you're doing. And that's all part of the state sending you a message that you're under scrutiny, that you're being watched. And there's no doubt at all that the foreign ministry that grants us the visas is absolutely watching what we're doing. You know, back in the Soviet days, you're very aware that that, that there's the KGB and, and they've got the place, you know, you're in the building, the office, the hotel bugged. But now it's so much more sophisticated. It's on your phone. It's getting hacking into your emails, all those sorts of things. So you just have to assume that they're, they're, they're seeing all of it. But bizarrely on the streets, um, you don't get a sense of that at all. You know, there are some countries that we go to where there's a lot of animosity to Westerners. But you didn't get that in Russia, not before the war. I mean, I did uh, a week or so into the war and the Kremlin's propaganda machine had really begun to spin up. I noticed a change in some people's attitude, particularly the older generation that buy into that state propaganda. But on the streets, no. I mean, on the streets, it was uh, and in the stores, you know, people there just genuinely friendly <laughs> with Westerners, identify with your culture, identify with, with, with who you are. And it, yeah, just strange that they were being marched into a war that because of their propaganda, they weren't even particularly aware of. Just the other day, Vladimir Putin made a statement on television, and it was really, to watch was really, I don't know, it wasn't startling, I guess, but just the level of, I don't know, paranoia or, you know, he's talking about purifying Russian society of of infiltrators and people who live in Russia, but really live emotionally and and in their minds in the West and are en- the enemies from within. I mean, it was really terrifying. Hugely terrifying. I mean, the, the ideals and the values that you and I share about our lives, about what we think, Putin is making a war on these values. He's making them alien. The Russian people especially are able to distinguish true patriots from bastards and traitors and will spit them out like a gnat that accidentally flew into their mouths. 
I am certain that this necessary and natural self-cleaning of our society will only strengthen our country. I mean, this is a scary thing. It's not just the war in Ukraine. He's now opening a war on his own people, on his own streets, and is opening the door for right-wing thugs to, to, to take on those who share the liberal values that we have, that so many Russians do. You know, young Russians today, they're not just you know, watching, uh, you know, YouTube and, and, and communicating with people on, on TikTok and Twitter and, and all the ways that you get around state media. They've got friends who are living in Europe and the United States all over the world. They, they, they get it. They, they, they share these values that we have that Putin is now saying are alien and are wrong. And, and this is an assault not just on the information environment, but on, on the very values that people hold. It's very dangerous. You know, there's been a lot of talk about in the United States over the last couple of years, people having alternate realities or just listening to news that, that validates their own political beliefs, whatever side of the political aisle some, someone might be on. In Russia, you know, we've heard from so many Ukrainians who have talked about talking with uh, former friends or, or with relatives of theirs who simply do not believe what is happening here in Ukraine is is actually happening, who simply do not, who believe that their their own sibling or their parent is lying to them about being in a shelter and their residential buildings being bombarded. Yeah, I mean, at, le at least in our democracies, there are, there are two sides. You can go to different TV channels in the US and, and get different perspectives, right? In Russia, you don't have that. In Russia, it really is just that one state perspective because that alternative voice, the voice of truth, is not available. You know, I've talked to people likewise who've said, number one, they say, I find it hugely difficult to, to process that we are now killing people in, in my name you know, in, in Ukraine. But the government, did you expect the government to invade Ukraine? No, definitely not. Why not? Um, because it's unbelievable. It's so mm, barbaric, I don't know. They find that so difficult to process because it's it's not what they want. I want, I want you to solve this immediately. I'm a citizen of this country, and I want you to stop this immediately. Yet if they talk to their parents about it, their parents say, no, no, this is, this is necessary because, you know, this is the Nazis, you know, whatever completely erroneous lines that the Kremlin has fed them, there's part of society that's buying that. But they don't have that alternative to even get another element, another view. And I think that's what Putin's doing so pernicious, because at least in democracies, people have the opportunity to tune in to both sides of the argument, let's say. The, the economic sanctions, for average Russians, how will they see them? How will they feel them? You know, I think anyone that works for a, a, a Western company, you know, the banks, the law firms, the car manufacturers, all of these employees now know their jobs are on the line. So there are people that are, that are going to see immediate economic hardship. There's those that are going to see their payments on loans go up because the value of the ruble is dropping. That's going to hit them more slowly. The big thing for Putin is when he gets the next winter and it's cold and, it, and people are hungry and they're out of jobs, 
this is going to be a massive moment for him to manage. At the moment, he's trying to manage the sort of bigger picture economics of how do you try to move the money, get access to the money, stabilize the ruble. But it's going to be a real human problem come, you know, six months' time. This sad for me, really sad. Uh, and today, i just thinking about maybe move to anywhere. Outside of Russia? Yeah. And I want to cry about this because I so love my country, but I don't like our government and what they do. But at the moment, or at least when we left, it really was only just beginning to filter through to sort of normal people. You know, we talk about the, the Russian way of war a lot and how brutal it is. It's something that Vladimir Putin has really uh, pushed w in order to solidify his power. I mean, in Chechnya, he, you know, the strategy became decimate the the capital Grozny and then instill this thug in as the, the leader. And and that worked. I mean, it it I don't know how long it will work for, but it it worked. I mean, they leveled Grozny. It was incredibly violent. It, you know, both in 1995, 1996, and then obviously in later on as well. I was too scared to go to Grozny as a young one-man band when I first started and, and was interested in going to conflict zones. But that one just freaked me out because it was just so crushingly brutal. Yeah, I remember talking to Friends reporters, the great Kurt Short of Reuters, who now passed away in another conflict, talking about watching Grozny being shelled by the Russians. And he said it was just like watching, um, you know, a pot boiling. There were so many impacts from artillery and, and other strikes that the whole city just seemed to be like a liquid that was, that was moving. I mean, uh, and I think this is what, I mean, part of Putin's agenda here is clearly to make his end goal, whatever that is in Ukraine, easier mm. by absolutely freaking out and terrorizing to the nth degree the civilian population. And his history in Chechnya and Syria and Georgia um, all feed into that. One of the things, I'm sure you find the same thing, that's so hard to watch, to, to, to fathom that on such a, you know, you want to call it a flimsy agenda, but it's not a flimsy agenda. It's an utterly fabricated agenda. On this fabricated agenda, he can perpetrate so much fear, terror, mayhem, massacre, killing. And it's done partly to, to just get people the hell out of there, to, to, to make it impossible for the civilians to, to think straight, to, to just, you know, to get to the point where they just have to leave. The only way to survive is to leave. And that just makes it easier for him. And he rolls his forces in to these decimated cities and then controls them with his own, with his own puppet regimes. I just can't see it working across the whole of Ukraine. And it is clearly stalling and it's clearly going badly wrong for him. You know, his early on, the statement that he made prior to the invasion about Ukraine being an essential part of Russia and, you know, as if Russia could not live without the, the you know, their fellow brothers and sisters in, in Ukraine. And then as soon as, you know, that didn't work out, he decides, all right, you know what, we'll just bomb the shit out of them and we'll just we'll just crush them. And so it just, you know, I mean, obviously he is 
saying things which are not true, but it's just such a prime example of he makes this long argument about how essential Ukraine is, and now he's essentially just trying to level it and and not even being very, you know, completely successful at that at, at this stage. So try to follow what Putin says and make logical common sense out of it is a road to insanity. You can't. You cannot square the things he says with what he does and what he's achieving. You know, you can't make, you can't jump from that to say the guy's insane. You can't. But there is no logic. It is all about achieving the goal. And the goal is subjugating Ukraine, sending a message to the West. It's going to fail, clearly, but it's going to destroy so much before it does. And it'll destroy him. More with Nick Robertson after a break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Do you think you'll be able to return to Russia at some point? I hope so. I mean, I want to. If they give another visa, then I would go if we feel that there's an environment we can work in. Um, but I, I, I couldn't imagine having a frank conversation like this broadcast in Russia hmm. with the Russian authorities listening to it and saying that's a voice we want on our territory. I mean, our job is to report, and it's our job to report accurately and fairly and faithfully for the audience. So you can't compromise that. Did you always want to be a reporter? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm only laughing because my path to getting here was, was as an engineer, but I was always interested in the news. I mean, I remember being a kid, sitting at home before I ever went to school, and my parents, we didn't have music in the house when I was a kid. We used to listen to the to the BBC radio news service. And I remember sitting there having my lunch as a little tiny kid listening to the one o'clock news about the world. And I think that's where my fascination grew from. But I think from my parents, from my mother, I got compassion. And they always taught us to try to understand other people. Hmm. And I hope that that's what I can bring. Although she did ask me only 10 years ago, what am I doing? Was that a, what are you doing? Why are you going to dangerous places? What are you doing? Or just, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> no, it was that kind of thing. Why, why, why do you go to these places? And I said, well, look, this is what you've instilled in me. You've instilled this desire for the underdog to get their voice heard, for, you know, for people to do the right thing. And that's, I think that's part of our job 
to try to explain what's happening so good decisions can be made and, and the right thing can be done. And clearly, war is a wrong thing. What was the first combat zone you were in? Uh, driving into driving into Bucharest just before Christmas uh, 1989. I'd been at Berlin when the, when the Brandenburg Gate was coming down, and I'd gone from there to go to cover the overthrow of uh, Ceausescu in Romania. Wow. And that must have been fascinating. I was scared out of my mind. Um, I was a satellite engineer and I had all the satellite equipment. We got to the border and there was a, a camera a camera guy and a producer and they were covered in blood. And they'd spent the night hiding under a car in the middle of Bucharest. Their, their correspondent had been shot by a sniper and killed while they were doing a stand-up. And they hid out next to the body under a car in the blood. And that as soon as they could, they got out and went to the border. And... When our truck driver saw that, he quit. So we had to get another truck driver. And I just I, I just remember driving in and like trying to hide in the cab behind the driver. And and I'd managed to get a phone call out to my parents like four o'clock in the morning afterwards. You you had to go to the hotel and give the uh give the telephone operator a couple of packets of Marlboro Light or Red or whatever it was to get a phone call out. And I remember calling my parents and saying, Hey, don't worry, I'm in Romania. So I think that's when their worries began. Yeah, that's not a call many parents want to get. Uh -uh. Yeah, I'm in Romania <laughs> during the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. I remember in, in Egypt when in, for the overthrow of Mubarak, I called my mom one day, and it was when Tahrir Square was about to blow up. And uh, I told her I was just going to hang out by the pool that day. Not that there was a pool or that I would have done that, but I just it was the only thing I could think of to sort of make conversation and just kind of allay any concerns. And I think she knew I was lying, certainly. But um, yeah, but yeah, we always want to make our parents feel better. Um, well, Nick Robertson, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, well, you, you too, Anderson. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tug of War. Next week, my colleague David Rind, host of CNN's Five Things, will be back to help make sense of the biggest moments in the constantly changing situation in Ukraine. Remember, new episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday. And for real-time updates, find and follow the CNN Five Things podcast wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paolo Ortiz, David Rind, Nathan Miller, and Audrey Horowitz. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Andrew Morse, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Elizabeth Roberts. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 